Amen. All right, well, that's good news. We have some even better news, okay? So grab your Bible, and uh, the the better news is in your Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be looking at today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and stand. Uh, We're going to stand together, and we're going to read. I'll read uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Romans 6, 5 through 7. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, that's on page 942. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. And as we read, remember, we're reading God's Word. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's God's word. You may be seated. Have you ever wondered why some people try to change and they make a good start at it and then it fades off? And other people try to make a change and they stick with it? Maybe you've even wondered in your life, maybe there have been things for you where you've gone, here's a, here's a thing I'm trying to change. I'm trying to get stronger in this area or healthier in this area. I'm trying to get rid of this pattern or habit in my life. And, and, and sometimes you do it and you, you make an attempt at it and you just fizzle out. And other times you make an attempt at it and it sticks and it works, right? I mean, I think about kind of the difference between someone who uh, decides they're going to quit smoking as a New Year's resolution, and that often ends, you know, within a matter of weeks, versus someone who, who a doctor says, hey, you have emphysema, you need to stop smoking. A lot of times they're more able to make that change. Why? And then there's other people who experience suffering and experience difficulty, and some people experience it and it just withers them. I mean, all suffering and all pain is difficult, but for some, they they just are never the same. They never recover. And other people, they're never the same because of how much stronger that suffering makes them. What explains those differences? Well, there's probably a lot of different factors, but I think one key factor is that people who are able to make lasting change and people who are able to endure difficulty and suffering and endure it well have deeper roots. There's a deeper root involved in deciding to stop smoking because you have emphysema. Like, wow, I, I got to really do this. This is serious. There's a deep root there versus like, you know what? I just would like to be different in 2014. There's a, there's a difference in roots. I think about it like this. I'll show you a picture here of a prickly pear cactus. Prickly pear. Uh, maybe you have one of these in your home or you've seen these when you're out on a hike. Um, this is a particularly pretty one. And uh, my my parents have one of these in their front yard down here. And um, this summer, after one of the very few storms that we had, uh, their prickly pear, the ground underneath it just sunk and the thing like tipped over. And it's really pretty to look at and it's really kind of, you know, I mean, don't get too close, but, you know, and you can make jam out of it and all kinds of neat stuff with the prickly pear, but it doesn't have roots. Compare that to an oak tree. An oak tree. I remember, I I told you last week about when Molly and I got baptized when we were in college, and at that baptism service, one of the elders of our church stood up and read a passage of Scripture and then prayed for us, and the passage he read was from Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61, and this is what he prayed, he prayed that we would become, that Molly and I would become oaks of righteousness. 
oaks of righteousness, people that withstand the storm, people that grow strong, people that can comfort others underneath the shade. So how do you become an oak of righteousness instead of a prickly pear? They both look great, but one stands stronger. And the way you do it is it's all about your roots. That's why we're spending so much time digging into the the details of a passage like this in Romans 6. Some of you may be at a point where you're going, you know, let's get practical. Tell me what to do. And even today in the sermon, there's going to be times where you're like, okay, what do I do with that? And what does that look like exactly? And here's what I'm trying to do is to go, wait. Because the kind of change that you're so eager to see in yourself, the kind of sin that you're so eager to stop committing, the kind of, of, of strength you're so eager to have in the midst of pain, it will only come through deep roots. And what Paul is laying for us here is roots, deep roots, that if we get these will truly help us understand how we change and how we endure. So that's what we're looking at today in Romans chapter 6. We're getting a a look at some of these deep roots, and it'll be a little bit that way next week as well. We begin this section with Paul asking a really important question. He asked in chapter 6, verse 1, you can look at it there. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Perhaps you remember over the last few weeks we saw that that, that Paul is kind of going through this whole thing. And one of the things he said was that no matter how much sin increases, grace abounds all the more. God's God's totally able to to superabound his grace over your sin. And that raises a, a natural objection that Paul had encountered, which was this question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. Maybe if grace constantly trumps over sin, maybe it's a great idea to just keep sinning and you'll get more grace. That's the question that Paul is dialoguing about and answering. And we see his answer. It's very strong here in verse 2. Are we continuing sin that grace may abound? Verse 2. By no means. No way. The the language here, it's just as emphatic of a statement as, as you can have. Inconceivable impossible, no way, by no means. And then what's his explanation? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And the key phrase that we need to kind of hone in on as we start here today is that phrase, still live in it. What that's talking about is is somebody who doesn't just visit sin occasionally, you know, stop by for an hour or maybe go on vacation into sin for a week or maybe make a sabbatical of it for a few months. But, but, but there, talking about someone that makes a home in sin, who lives in sin, who just feels comfortable in sin, the kind of person that will go, I'm just going to keep sinning and God's grace will abound. He's going, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying, no way. And what Paul is saying here is not just that it's unlikely that a true Christian would make a home in sin, not just that it's ill-advised for a Christian to make a home in sin. Paul is saying something bigger. He's saying it's impossible. It's impossible. A Christian, someone who has been united to Christ by faith, not by their works, not by renouncing a bunch of things and trying to do better, but by saying, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus, he paid it all for me on the cross, I'm going to trust him. That's what a Christian is. And what Paul is saying here is that a Christian cannot, will not, it's impossible for a Christian to live 
persistently in ongoing, unrepentant, undealt with, unbattled sin. It's impossible. It's impossible for a Christian to make a home in sin. Now, you get the difference of what I'm saying here. I'm not at all saying that Christians don't sin. Anyone sin today? The rest of you are liars, <laughs> right? I mean, we're going to sin, and we're going to sin daily, and, and, and that's a, a very common thing, and it's so common that the next chapter is Paul is going to say, man, I do the things I don't want to do, and I keep struggling with all this. But, but what Paul's talking about is I'm struggling with it. I'm fighting it. I'm resisting it. That's what he's going to talk about in chapter 7. But what he's saying here in chapter 6 is if you've gotten to the point where you don't fight and you don't resist and you don't struggle, you're not a Christian because a Christian doesn't make a home in sin. It's impossible. So what this passage is going to do in verses 5, 6, and 7, he's going to give us three reasons why it's impossible for a Christian to make a home in sin in sin. First reason is in verse 5, is that we are united to Christ. Uh, verse 5 is a lot like verse 4. Verse 4 said, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we, we talked last week about how baptism is a picture of this idea of union with Christ. So we've been united to him. So when we go down into the water, it's a picture of Jesus going down into the grave. And we come up out of the water, it's a picture of Jesus coming up out of the grave. It's why we'd love, if you haven't been baptized and you're a Christian, we'd love you to be baptized in a few weeks to give that symbolic sermon of being united to Christ. And, and Paul continues this idea. He says this, verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now it's interesting because this word united... It's a uh, gardening term in the original language. It's, it's, uh, it, it really, it brings to mind one of Jesus' most significant pictures of union with Christ. We talked last week about baptism as a picture. Well, the scripture's filled with pictures of what it is to be united to Christ by faith. Uh, on the night that Jesus was spending the Last Supper with his disciples, he had an extended time of teaching, and he gives an illustration like this in John 15, where he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. It's a picture of being united. It's that gardening idea. We're united, we're growing together, we've been grafted together. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a picture of, of union, the life of Christ flowing through us, right? You imagine a vineyard and you imagine grapes and vines growing, right? These are, these are connected things. They're united. We depend on Christ. That's that picture. Now, there's other pictures the Scripture gives. The Apostle Peter, in one of his letters, describes Christians as being stones who are being built into the temple of God, the place where God would dwell. God dwells with his people, and so he compares Christians to stones who are being built into this temple with Jesus as the cornerstone. So imagine bricks and stones being put together to build something significant. Those are united. They're connected. You take one thing out, it all crumbles. It's a picture of being united to Jesus. Another picture is the body. Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12, that we're like a body, right? And he says each person is like a part of the body of Christ with Jesus as the head. 
right? And unless you have a prosthetic here today, and that may be possible, you know that you can't just sort of leave your arm on the table and go do other things because it's united. And so we're united to Christ by faith. We are in Him, in Christ, in Christ alone, we sang. We're in Christ. So much so that when we go and do the things that Jesus did in the world around us, the Scripture calls us the hands and feet of Jesus. It's Jesus doing it through us. Why? Because we're united to Christ. It's impossible for Christians to make a home in sin, to just accept sin and live in it without fighting. It's impossible because we're united to Christ. Christ doesn't just live in sin. Christ doesn't ever sin. So for us to to bring Christ into a a home of sin, just getting comfortable, hey Jesus, let's just get comfortable in all this sin, Paul says it's impossible. It's impossible. There's another reason why it's impossible for Christians to make a home in sin. This is in verse 6. This is that our old self died with Christ. Our old self died with Christ. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul uses a number of words here that we want to kind of break down. First, he says, we know, we know. So it's not like we're hoping this is true. This is true. This is fact. Even if you don't feel like it, even if you just go, I don't know, this is true. We know it's true. What's true? That our old self was crucified with him. Our old self, what is that? Well, if you think about what Paul's been talking about in the context of this letter so far, what you see is that the old self refers to who we were in Adam. The end of chapter 5, Paul did a whole comparison where he said we naturally come into the world in Adam. We said it was like coming into the world in a, in a car cart like you have at the grocery store. And you're in the Adam car cart, and you're just in that. And no matter how you steer or how you try to get out, you can't get out. You're in Adam. That's who you are naturally born into sin. And what you need is for Jesus to come rescue you out of that cart and put you in his cart. So that old self, What happened? Paul says, that old self, that old man, that old woman, was crucified with him. John Stott says it this way uh, in this quote. He says, what was crucified with Christ was not a part of me called my old nature, but the whole of me as I was before I was converted. Right? So get this. The scripture does not present Christians as kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. Where it's like, sometimes I live in my old nature, sometimes I live in my new nature, and I just go back and forth. No, no, no. Paul's saying, the old self was crucified. The old self is dead. Now, we'll talk in a little bit about why you, you know, what it means to go back and live that way, but, but the old man is dead. He was crucified. Why does he say crucified? Our old self was crucified with him. It's to remind you that when Jesus was crucified, you were in him. It's as if you were there, dying with Christ to the penalty of sin, right? Because the the guilt of sin is not on you anymore because you were in Christ and Christ died for sin. 
So you're freed from the penalty of sin. You're also, it's going to say here, freed from the power of sin. And if that's true, then Paul's saying you're therefore freed from the practice of sin, the ongoing living in, making a home in sin. Our old self was crucified with him. He describes this very similarly in Galatians 2.20. In Galatians 2.20, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The old me is dead, Paul says. The new me is Christ living in me by faith because he's the vine and I'm the branch and I'm united to him by faith. See, we come into the world like what you might call crack babies. And I I don't like that term very much because the baby, it's not the baby's fault. But some of you have been in situations or been around people or fostered kids who were born addicted because of choices that their mother had made. And the baby didn't do anything to to choose that slavery and that addiction. It just comes naturally because it's born in that slavery. And what Paul is saying is all of us are born enslaved to sin. We're born addicted to sin. Which is why that old person needs to be crucified, needs to be killed. He says, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, that old person, that dominating force of sin, might be brought to nothing, rendered useless, totally ineffective. Some translations say destroyed. The old person in Adam, enslaved to sin, has to be killed. He's killed with Christ. What does he say? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you can't make a home in sin because you've been rescued out of it. Sin is no longer your master, Paul's saying. Right? Think about what you just sang a few moments ago in that song, In Christ Alone. Here's some of what you sang. And as he stands in victory... Since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Since curse has lost its grip, the the slavery is over. That old person is dead with Christ. Dead to the power of sin. Dead to the penalty of sin. And therefore dead to the practice of sin. So it's impossible for Christians to make a home, to get comfortable in sin. Because we're united to Christ. We died with him, and therefore, if we died with Christ, sin is no longer our master. That's essentially what he says. He kind of repeats himself a little bit in verse 7, where he says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. If you've died with Christ, and Christ is free from sin, sin has no power over Jesus, correct? Correct? He's raised in victory. Sin has no power over him. You're in him. Therefore, sin has no ruling, mastering power over you. Now, its presence is still there, isn't it? Right? The idea here is that we are no longer in sin, though sadly, sometimes, all the time, sin continues to live in us. But we are not in sin. It's not our master anymore. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a... um, Welch, a Welsh preacher in the, ni- in the 20th century, 
kind of 1960s, 70s, and um, he has an illustration kind of related to this where he says, imagine two fields separated by a road, and one field is governed by Satan. You come into the world working that field. You know, you're, you're, you're doing all the things to, to just, you just naturally do it, and then one day Jesus comes across and he rescues you and he pulls you into his field. Now, you might be in that field, and you're now working for Jesus, and you're now loving Jesus, and you're serving him, and there's going to be times when Satan is going to be kind of across the road tempting you and yelling at you and accusing you, and there might even be times when you're on, 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 you know, you're doing your work and you're kind of looking back, I kind of missed that place. I was comfortable there. It was easier there, and you might be tempted, and you might want to go back. And you might even, you know, peer over the fence. You may even once in a while sort of sneak over. But you don't live there. Because you're not enslaved anymore. Now, if you get this, here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that the Christian life is a process of becoming who you already are. Do you get that? We are declared free in Christ, dead to sin. The process then of, of living with Jesus, of, of living out the Christian life, is becoming who we already are. Now, we don't always act according to how we are, right? Sometimes we act like we're still in sin, right? So I think about the Brazelton's house, and they have five, they have five children, and, and uh, the oldest is nine, and the youngest, Shiloh, is just about one. She's a baby. And so it's, it's probably... Um, stressful at times in their house, right? And, uh, and, you know, Matthew works with me, which is probably a big headache. And so there may be times when he comes home from, from work and is like, Christy, you'll never, Luke is such a jerk, and he did this, and complaining. He says he'd never do that. But just imagine for a second. If that happened, I, I can imagine Christy, who's been home with the kids most of the day and is not have a huge tolerance for that, I could imagine her saying, Matthew, Stop being a baby. You're being a baby. Stop it. And you go, yeah, you're right. I'm not a baby, right? But if Shiloh, their one-year-old, has a, you know, you know, bumps into something or then starts crying or throwing a fit, she would never say, Shiloh, stop being a baby. Because she's a baby. She, she is, right? But to, so to say to a baby, stop being a baby, that, that's dumb. To say to an adult, stop being a baby makes a lot of sense. You're acting like something you're not. And every time we sin, what we're doing is we're, act, we're living out something that isn't true of us. Because we are dead to sin in Christ. And that is what's true of us. And so the Christian life is becoming who we already are. Now this may raise some important questions for you. Some of you who would say, you know, I don't even really consider myself a Christian. I'm not sure I'm tracking with all of this. Um, what you need to know from, from this text is that apart from Jesus, you are dead in sin. You're, a slave, you're alive to sin. You're, you're, you're a slave to it. You can't help it, right? And so that's why we're not going to get up here and just preach a bunch of morality, like be a better person, be a better person. That'd be like going to Shiloh and saying, don't be a baby. She is a baby. And if you're dead and if, if you're alive to sin, you're enslaved to sin, what you need is not sort of rules on how to be better in your slavery to sin. You need to be rescued out of sin. You need Jesus, right? And this would be a wonderful opportunity for you to trust in Christ. 
Now, there are some of you as well today who, if you were to reflect on it, maybe you're already thinking this. Michael, you know what? I think I'm, I'm calling myself a Christian, but I'm making a home in sin. There's this area in my life of gossip or a complaining negative spirit or impurity or greed. And I've just kind of made peace with it. I don't intend to fight it. It's just who I am. What you've done is you've made a a home in sin, which means you have to ask the question, is it possible that the reason you're making a home in sin, is it possible that perhaps the reason for that is that you've never actually been united to Christ by faith? That you've gone to church and you've gone through the motions and you maybe serve and give and are in community, but perhaps your heart has never really been united to Christ by faith. Perhaps you think it's still about your morality or your good works or something like that. And, and perhaps the reason why you're still feeling so enslaved to sin is because you are a slave to sin. Is that possible? Maybe you're on an extended vacation into sin. And maybe this message and this opportunity will be the very thing that God uses to help you go, yeah, that's not who I am. I'm dead to sin in Christ. I, I don't want to just live in this. I don't want to wallow in this. I don't want to just give up that fight. I can't give up that fight because I'm a new creation in Christ. And that's true for all of us. See, see here's, here's the reality. If we're becoming who we already are, then what happens when we're tempted, what happens when we're struggling is we have to lean in to who we are. And here's the reality. That's the better way to live. See, the person who's a slave to sin, they think they're, you know, they think I'm I'm just doing what I want. I'm living how I want. I'm making all my decisions. And the reality, Paul says, is no, you're a slave to sin. And if you actually want to be free, and if you actually want to live in full humanity the way God created you to live, you need to die to sin and be made alive in Christ. That's what you need. I've been reading a a book um, that I just, I love the title. I just, when I saw the title, I was like, I got to read that book. And so far the book's been pretty good, but the title's amazing. It's by John Eldridge. The title of it is The Utter Relief of Holiness holiness, being serious about obedience, being serious about saying no to sin. That's a word we don't think of as relief. We think of that as, oh, it's a fight. Oh, that's difficult. Oh, I got to work. Oh, I got to, right? And, And this title alone, just the utter relief of holiness. Why would holiness be a relief? Because if you're in Christ, it's living out who you actually are. Here's a quote from that book. John Eldridge says, The only road to holiness is to know that we have died with Christ to sin, that the deepest, truest part of us doesn't want it. What a relief. So when you're tempted this week, when you're discouraged this week, when things happen and you're tempted to run back into sin, remind yourself, I'm dead to sin. The deepest, truest part of me doesn't want it. Even though there is a little part of me that wants it right now, the deepest, truest, who I actually am, who God sees me as, who God has declared me to be, doesn't 
want it. Remember you're dead to sin. Next week we look at what it means to be alive in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the powerful truth of what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you that uh, we don't have to try to die to sin, but you've already declared that we have. We've been crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Our old man is dead. And a new life has begun. And God, thank you that you're making us and remaking us into the men and women and the people that you've called us to be. So God, thank you for that process. We love you. We pray that we would see ourselves as you are and that we would become who we already are. In Jesus' name.